Thank you so much for tuning in to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio. Uh, of course, I'm Karen Rands, and today's episode is unique and different for two reasons. One, because it's the 35th anniversary of my being shot through the nose by the I-95 sniper as I was returning home from the airport down in Jacksonville. And two, because it's me being interviewed instead of me interviewing somebody else. As you know, if you listen to this show a lot, then you know I usually interview people that are influencers or involved in creating great companies as entrepreneurs or investing in great companies and creating wealth that way or somehow influence that dynamic with the book they wrote or the organization they run or whatever that might be. People oftentimes want to know why did I start the Compassionate Capitalist Movement? Why do I name my show this? Where did that come from? And the question that I asked myself years ago was, why would you, Karen Rands, be the person to do or start or lead the Compassionate Capitalist Movement? And those questions are going to be answered today when you listen to this podcast. People have defining moments in their life, and this was something that I don't talk about very often. But when I met Scott Johnson, the host of the What Was That Like podcast, where he interviews very unique people that, or unique circumstances that happen to regular people, I should say, uh, I met him down at the podcast movement when I had made the decision that rebooting my podcast and doing what I needed to do to amplify my message about angel investing after I'd come out with my book Inside Secrets to Angel Investing I needed to amplify that because Facebook ads and Twitter just wasn't cutting it I needed something that would engage people in a greater way to understand the value of investing in entrepreneurs and my compassionate capitalist movement and I was at a convention and about podcasting, and I met Scott there, and, uh, you know, as you do when you go to these kind of things, oh, what do you do, why are you here, what, you know, and he told me about his show, and at the time, I was like, well, I don't, I guess I have something that's kind of unique, and, but I, I'm not sure if I really want to talk about it, because I didn't want it to define me, I didn't want it to be, oh, that's the girl that got shot through the nose, <laughs> and so, um, which it was very much so in those early years right after college when I would talk to people or I would run into people I went to school with and it became the thing. I was uncomfortable with that, but then I realized that it had a it had was a piece of my life along with other things that led me to the point where I gained the belief and the force that said I can do this. I can start this compassionate capitalist movement and this is the story of that. And if you want to hear more about Scott, he'll tell you the website, but it's whatwasthatlike.com slash my episode is 33. Scott Johnson is a, is a gifted interviewer and storyteller. Enjoy the show. Thank you for tuning in. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. 
Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. One summer day in Jacksonville, Florida, Karen got the surprise of her life. She was with her friend Cheryl. They were pulled over on the interstate, I-95, and Karen was holding a blanket to her face. She was bleeding, and she didn't even know what had happened. In short time, she learned from a police officer that she had been shot. And she wasn't the only one. Nine cars that afternoon on that section of I-95 had been hit by bullets from an unknown source. Six people were injured, and the manhunt was on for the shooter, a 16-year-old boy who was eventually caught and arrested. Karen and I talked about what happened that day, what it feels like to be shot in the face, and the lucky break she caught when she was taken to the ER. And at the end of the conversation, Karen gives a scoop on her area of expertise, which is angel investing and the compassionate capitalist movement. As always, I'll have links to everything we talked about in the show notes for this episode, which is at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash 33. And if you'd like to join the others who support this podcast for as little as $1 a month, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash support. And can I just say this? I mean, it's just you and me here, right? You're probably driving or maybe out for a walk. And what are you doing right now? You're listening to me. Of course, the real attraction here are the guests I have on and hearing their unbelievable stories. I don't have any stories like that. Well, maybe one that comes to mind. But what I want to tell you is this. I appreciate that you're listening to my podcast Out of all the 700,000 podcasts that are out there right now, you're listening to this one. That means a lot, and I thank you. And now, here's my conversation with Karen. On a scale of 1 to 10, how surprised were you to get shot that day? Well, I would say probably a 10. You don't, uh, you know, you think you're going to work and, you know, all that stuff coming back from a weekend and all of a sudden your life is in a completely different yeah, place. Yeah, I can't imagine such a, I mean, wow, instantaneous turnaround and things. Wow, it's just amazing how that how that happened. Let's talk about, give us a little background on what led up to this. You were in Jacksonville, Florida, right? Right. I was, it was the summer between my graduating from college and before I was going off to grad school and I was working and having a lot of fun and had gone away for the weekend. It was in June. And so uh, when I was in college, you know, previously there had been a group of friends that I had hung out with. I had been um, part of a a group of rugby guys that I would, that were my neighbors in my dorm and ended up doing a lot of road trips and, you know, fun stuff with them. And they were like a bunch of big brothers to me and turned out that that particular weekend, um, a group of them that had already graduated were the year before us were uh, having, getting married. It was a 
um, John and Cindy that had John had been one of my neighbors and Cindy had been his long-term girlfriend and we um, were going up to New Jersey to for our wedding and all of us were convening almost like a small reunion because I hadn't seen a lot of them in a year since they had graduated and then I had just graduated and uh, so we were up there having a good old time that weekend and there was um, some updates in my personal life, a guy that had been a good friend of mine during that whole time, um, that year after they had graduated, had become a romantic interest. So there was all kinds of new news for when I got back in at to the airport back in Jacksonville, returning from that trip. And you lived in Jacksonville, right? Right, or right. Jacksonville Jackson- Beach? Yeah, Jacksonville Beach. I lived with my mom down there during the summer. Okay. And how old were you then? I was 21. Okay. You said you had just graduated college. Right. I just graduated from Emory University and was getting to go to MBA school down at University of Florida starting up in August. So this was like right smack in the in the middle. And it was a month before my birthday. My birthday's on July second. So And so you flew back into Jacksonville and what take us from that time, you know, what happened that day? So my best friend, who also knew all of these people because she used to road trip up from FSU and and she also hung around with the rugby team down at FSU. And so we would get together at these tournaments together. And so she knew all these guys. And um, the guy that David that I had started seeing, the three of us had done a bunch right at my graduation as part of my graduation. So we had a whole history and things like that. So, of course, when she picked me up from the air, was picking me up from the airport, I had all this new news to tell her because this was all kind of breaking news, so to speak, of this, this stuff happening. And uh, we ran into a friend of ours because you have to think about it. Back in 1985, you don't there weren't any cell phones, there wasn't any social media, uh, and at the time, so this guy that uh, I had met on a spring break and had done this excursion in a sailboat excursion, the spring break my senior year, uh, we bumped into him because he had come down from Atlanta to catch a plane from Jacksonville to. Newark because it was cheaper at that time to fly from Jacksonville to Newark than from Atlanta to Newark. And so, so I was surprised if we come out the gate back then, you could go up to the gates, you know, we didn't have the security we have now. So he, so this guy, Mike was there. And so, uh, Cheryl and I hung out with him and just kind of catch it up. And then when we got in the car to, to head home, I uh, head back down to the beach from the airport. It's about a 30 to 40 minute drive we're out on um, I-95, which is uh, one of the little roads that you go from the airport to get down to our main drag going into the to the beach, which is 10. So I'm uh, we're driving and I'm thirsty. And I so I you know, these are all kind of like these this weird stuff leading up to it. When you think about what what is a that moment where, you know, all things could have changed, you know, had we not stopped and hung out with Mike had we not I leaned forward to get she had an old soda in her cup holder and she said no it's hot you don't want that and I said okay fine so I leaned back and and uh and then all of a sudden the the glass shatters it's really hot outside it's probably 100 degrees or something and and I felt like I'd got I played basketball in high school and I played on intramurals on the uh, at Emory on basketball and so it felt like I'd gotten hit in the face with a basketball because I'd missed plenty of passes in my day and gotten hit in the face with a basketball but this time 
all of a sudden I'm bl- I'm pouring blood out of my face. I see this almost like a spigot coming down from my nose as I'm looking down. I'm like, where is, why am I spigot of blood coming out of my face? And I yelled to Cheryl, you know, of course she heard the glass shatter. Now Cheryl was driving, right? You were in the passenger seat. Yeah, that's right. And she's taller than me. So she was back, you know, I was up further. So I was probably, you know, a few inches ahead of her in the seat. So, you know, I said, Cheryl, pull over. I'm bleeding. And she's like, oh, my God. And she pulls over and gets on the side of the road. She, her parents were in, um, uh, were in the police force, um, were public safety. Her d- mom was a dispatcher and her dad was a sheriff and her stepdad, I might get this, was a detective, one or the other, you know. And so she was, you know, she was well equipped to what to do in an emergency situation. So she got me out of the car, laid me down on the side of the road. I saw these other cars pulled over up ahead. And, uh, and this was on the, this was on the interstate, right? This is right, I-95. On I-95 between, you know, downtown Jacksonville and the airport and the beaches. And so she puts it, pulled out a blanket out of the car. It was a blanket that her, she laid her dog. She had a German, a German shepherd. That was like an old detective, you know, police dog that had been, put to retirement. And so she had this dog that she normally had. So he, this was his blanket, but it was all she had. And we were in an emergency. So we weren't caring that there was dog hair on it or anything like that. So she, she gives it to me, says, hold your nose. And so I'm holding my nose, just thinking I got cut with glass or something like that. And then, because at this point you really had no idea what had happened, right? No, I had no idea. I wasn't in any pain and we weren't looking around to see what had happened on the other side. So we had no idea like what had what had happened on her side of the car it was just sort of my side the the window is shattered and i'm bleeding and i'm on the side of the road and she runs up the thing i got this blanket over i can't see anything and she comes she comes back and she's hyperventilating crying and i can't hardly hear she can't make words and i'm like cheryl cheryl stop you're freaking me out i don't think it's that bad and and uh and she's trying to get her words out and then the next thing i hear is a police officer's a uh, voice and he says we have uh, a child with lacerations from glass and a woman who's been shot through the nose and i was like oh my god i've been shot through the nose that's me i've been shot through the nose how i can't believe i've been shot through the nose and i'm all these thoughts are going through my head like okay i had a dream of someday i was going to be on johnny carson now i could never be on johnny carson cuz i've got this mangled face unless i'm going to be on johnny carson cuz i got the mangled face so it's like you know all this stuff i'm thinking you know what oh my god i have no nose oh you know all of that and so but i still again i'm not in pain and so next thing you know i'm just like you know kind of babbling whatever and Probably, I don't know how long, man, it had been 15 minutes or something. I don't really recall the time frame. It didn't seem like it was that long. There's a an emergency vehicle there. I'm getting put into the back of the emergency vehicle. They say, what hospital do you want to go to? I don't even right now, I don't even really remember, but I was whatever I could think of at the time, Memorial Hospital or something like that. And so we go to the Memorial Hospital. I don't even know how fast, why those guys got there so fast. You know, I had no idea what was happening. So I get to the hospital, into the emergency room. Um, I think Cheryl got to a phone and called my mom. So I was really fortunate because um, on call that day, the doctor that was on call was a, a plastic surgeon. So they had a plastic surgeon 
on call, you know, they're in their emergency room when I got in. And this, you know, this happened during daylight hours. It was probably like three o'clock in the afternoon, two or three o'clock in the afternoon when it had happened. And so, you know, my mom got there and, and it was, you know, I was really, I was blessed in so many ways. One, I, you know, when I, when I went forward at the time that I went forward, I didn't, you know, seconds later would have gone through my head, you know, and uh, I was blessed that this, uh, this doctor was on call and, you know, all, I never had any other surgery other than he said that if I was ever, if anybody was ever going to get shot and had the least amount of damage to them, because, you know, usually bullet holes will leave an indentation if it's in your shoulder or something like that, you know, was I got shot in a part of my nose that didn't really do any damage. I don't have a deviated septum. I don't have, I mean, I have a little bit of, you know, kind of an ongoing allergy thing all the time, but um, I don't have major damage to my nose. It's just like people, you know, it looks like I, my, who knows, I've just got this a little bit. It basically took the flap of skin and put it back over and sewed it together and connected some of the membranes that were up inside of it to restore it. And I've got a little bit of uh, shrapnel on the edge of my mouth here that, you know, stays there and a little bit of glass up in the bridge of my nose that shows up on x-rays. But, you know, from that, that for the most part, that's it. And my bandage, I didn't have my head all bandaged up. You know, I just had, you know, a basic little bandage across my nose. So, Do, do you ever have to explain the shrapnel when you're going through an x-ray at an airport? <laughs> no, it doesn't actually pick up. So they don't even notice it, huh? I used to have to explain it a lot to doctors when they go, what's these things in your nose that they were doing any kind of a x-ray or like, you know, when you go to the dentist, you know, it like might show up at, it's the, the glass is kind of diminished over time and, and it's, so it's not as uh, prevalent as it was before. Now, I'm really curious because you, when you first found out that you were shot, it sounds like your, one of your initial reactions was, now I can't go on Johnny Carson. <laughs> yeah. what, why would you have gone on Johnny Carson? Were you a performer, an entertainer or some of some type? No, I just was, I had a dream of what I was going to be doing in the world and, you know, I, I wanted to be a person that was considered an expert at the time. I really, I wanted, I was an economics major at college. I went to get my MBA. I was kind of looking at doing an MBA JD and I wanted to be a person that advised companies, you know, travel the world, be exotic and be this sort of expert. And, you know, you always want to be famous for something that you could like be on a Johnny Carson or something. You know what I mean? It's like a 21 year old with all the future ahead of her and what, what might be my future. And, you know, it just wanted, I don't know, crazy thought. Seemed like it messed that up a little bit. Though. Yeah. Well, who knows? There's times that, you know, I'm a best-selling author. So who knows what's mm -hmm. going to the future may tell. <laughs> so what actually happened? Where did this bullet come from? The bullet, you know, came through the right window, the passenger window. It went under, it went through my nose and underneath Cheryl's chin because she was taller and sat back and up higher and out the other window. So there was a bullet hole in her window. And it turned out that there was, they actually, at the time, they didn't know what was going on. It became this giant manhunt because if you think about it, 1985, it was very rare that you had people getting shot like we have today. It was a unusual thing. And you guys, you, your car wasn't the only one that was targeted either. Right. So that's the thing. They, they found actually there were, so six people got injured from, from glass or shrapnel. I was the only one that actually got hit by a bullet. 
There was about, I think, you know, nine to 12 vehicles that got hit. Some of them showed up, you know, down in like Daytona when they stopped to get gas and they noticed there was a bullet hole in the side of their car or stuff like that. So reports were kind of coming in. And the, the governor had been scheduled to come from the airport to someplace. And so they weren't sure if that was kind of part of it. So there was helicopters flying, trying to figure out what was going on. And they had uh, detained a couple of guys that were out doing military games, you know, playing war games out in the woods. And they decided it wasn't them. And so they really had no idea, you know, there was paper the next day, there was like this big article in the paper with pictures and, and people that had not been injured, but their cars had been hit, you know, talking about what it was like and stuff like that. And so, you know, come to find out it was this 16 year old kid that he got turned in by a friend when he had told a friend, cause he didn't know he was hitting cars. He had, you know, apparently been tired of shooting at squirrels or whatever. He had borrowed some kid's gun and he had uh, it was a 22 rifle and he was shooting like an arcade game at cars going by and didn't know he was hitting the cars wasn't trying to hurt anybody and and so he when he was out of bullets he left he had no idea because the cars were pulling over on the side of the road and it wasn't until he saw it on the news that he realized it was him and i guess he was afraid he told a friend and then the friend turned him in and then he confessed and so then there was a they they arrested him about a week and a half later and then there was a whole bunch of uh, decisions on what to charge him with and, you know, six counts of of aggravated assault. And then, you know, because this was fairly unusual, he didn't have any kind of real record of being a, a, a bad kid in school, you know, maybe a tussle here and there. But, you know, no real record. His his uh, mom and dad had, had been divorced. His mom had recently remarried. You know, so he had a blended family, so there was a little bit of feeling like the odd kid out kind of a thing, I think, maybe. And so they started out trying to to uh, charge him as an adult. They eventually, I think, uh, settled for him to be charged under a youthful offender program with two counts of shooting into a vehicle and one count of aggravated battery. And he was uh, sentenced to eight years in prison with five years probation, he had a small, about $1,300 restitution to go to 13 people, you know, because that was kind of, I guess, you know, and then he was, it was in a medium security with 18 to 24-year-olds. Um, he was 17 at the time when he, when he finally got sentenced. Yeah, because he was 16 when it happened. And, yeah, just, look, it's just amazing that, I mean, kids do stupid things. Yeah. Um, but this... This one stupid thing seems like it kind of set the tone for the rest of his life. He didn't have a record prior to this. No. But I did some research. His name is Julius Steve Davis. And in this, for this case, this random shooting into cars, he was sentenced to eight years, got out after two years. Right. He was uh, released on, they, they had an overcrowding situation. And so good behavior ones that had had you know got out and and then unfortunately he was caught doing a crime like just a couple not even a few weeks or not that long after he got out and it was kind of stupid i looked up his record he a few months after he got out he shot up a jewelry store and stole about sixty thousand dollars worth of jewelry and so he was sentenced to 20 years for that but again got out early oh 
shortly after that, he held up two grocery stores at gunpoint in Jacksonville, and he was put back in prison, and then for that one, he got a life sentence, and he's still in prison today. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, because when he had, um, what I had heard when he got picked up on the second one, he had, it was at nighttime, so I don't think there was actually people involved. You know, he had, might have shot through the glass to get in there. But he was driving down the road without his lights on and got pulled over because he didn't have his lights on. And they saw the jewels and the gun in the back seat or on the seat of the car. And so it was just really kind of a stupid thing. And it was really tragic because, you know, I don't know how what what his life was like when he got out with his family. And, you know, there's such a hard time sometimes when people get out of prison these days for them to actually get a job and be part of, of society where they don't, they, they don't, they sometimes they feel like the only choice they have, they don't have any other choice to do anything other than crime. And it's, it's kind of a a tragedy of our, our justice system, but you know, and unfortunately he did make those even worse choices after he'd made the, the first bad choice when he was a kid. Yep. Some bad choices for sure. It was really amazing that with with uh, six different people that were injured, that no one was killed. In this. Yes, I, mean, I know it would have been you know a whole other story <laughs> had any of that happened, right? I mean, uh, I'm very again, I I I thank God that I'm here today to do the things that I do and to chart the course of the life that I've led so far, and you know, not take it for granted. And to have a story that you got shot. Yeah, <laughs> not many know, people still- can say that. I'm still waiting to win the lottery. You know, you know, nobody, everybody always says, like, I've never heard of anybody that's been shot through the nose. And I was like, well, how many people do you know that have won the lottery either? So, you know, I'm still waiting for that. Or Ed McMahon to knock on my, on my door or something like that. Or now it's, uh, I think it's Cedric or somebody. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I don't think Ed McMahon's knocking on too many doors these days. Not anymore, not anymore. <laughs> well, how did this, this was definitely a brush with death. For you, for your experience, how did that affect you? Or did it affect your outlook on life at all? Well, you know, I had this saying that I had adopted when I was 16 called live, love, laugh. You know, it's very common nowadays. And so it was sort of my, you know, live life fully, love freely, laugh spontaneously, right? And so it had been part of sort of my my makeup of my approach and viewpoint on life. And then when this happened, June 2nd became my life day. So I always try to plan something special with friends or sometimes I'm just feeling quiet, excuse me, feeling quiet and I'll, you know, celebrate my life day. So June 2nd is an important day for me. And I, you know, at the time, you know, I had sort of big dreams. I didn't know, you know, what that, what that meant and where it would go and where my life would go. But it was always something that I felt like I had, I had to find my purpose in life. And I never really felt afraid of driving or this kind of random thing would happen again, or I never brought any of that with me because I felt spared. You know what I mean? If something bad was going to happen, that was the time for something bad to happen, you know? So I felt like I'm not like I was going to be foolish and go off and, you know, jump off cliffs and things like that. Although, you know, I have done plenty of foolish things, but I felt like this is going to be, there's going to be something. And so by the time I got to um, having, you know, starting a family, you know, I was just kind of living a normal life, working the corporate gig, happily married, had a, uh, we'd been married about 10 years when our daughter came along. 
And I remember telling a friend when I was telling the story and I was, I had been, uh, I'd left IBM and I was kind of starting my business and, and, you know, I wasn't really sure if that was going to be, you know, I, when I left IBM and my life took a turn, I remember telling my friend, I said, well, you know, I don't know, you know, I always felt like, so maybe my special purpose is that being the mother of this child and I didn't have any other children. I wanted other children, but it just didn't happen. Being the mother of of my child, maybe she's going to go on and do something, you know, because I always, one of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. And, you know, part of this, the story of that is he thinks that he has, he had no value in his life when his business all falls apart. And he's like, everybody would have been better without me and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the angel comes down and tries to teach him what life would have been like without him. And, you know, there's all these changes, right? And then he, and he says, I did have a wonderful life. I did have a wonderful life, you know? And so it's, um, and so, you know, you wonder about that. You touch, you know, the thin threads of, of the people that you've touched in your life. And maybe that's the reason why, you know, I'm still here because there's something that I'm having an influence on somebody else or, you know, my daughter or whatever. And then, um, as I kind of went forward in life, the recession hit my business hard and I had had this big expectation of what was going to happen. I had taken over this angel group. I built it up really big, running these, doing these angel investor events, helping companies raise capital, learn how to raise capital, doing all these things. I thought we were going to make it a whole national deal. We we're going to have chapters all over the country and I was going to do this thing called our funding planet that was going to be this way, you know, now it's all over the place. But at that time, there wasn't a LinkedIn. LinkedIn was like the only social media that was out there at the time. And um, it was going to be a way for entrepreneurs and investors to connect up. Now you see all these crowdfunding platforms. So, But this was going to be a, a kind of a platform, our funding platform, our funding planet. And, and it was this uh, vision for what it was, but you didn't have template for doing this stuff. So it was, you know, heavy lifting to get this thing done. And then the recession hit and everything just kind of fell apart. I learned a lot of lessons about, you know, the direction my business was going at the time and things that I should have done different. And it was, you know, a life lesson, but the people that worked for me got laid off and I became a solopreneur again and, you know, was dealing with a lot of discouragement about setting these big dreams and this big expectation of where my life was going to go and the impact I was going to have. And I was coming up on my 50th birthday and my dad had passed. And when um, he had a, we a hospice situation at his house. And so I was out there to look at his, to, to, you know, kind of be there during that process. And I started going through all of his memorabilia to create what we were going to use for the funeral. And, and I discovered that because my dad had not been a big part of my life during my teens, and I really only got to know him as kind of an adult. And so I discovered that all these things that I had known about him, he was a very he had, was an inventor. He invented the the first screen printer to be able to do five colors on a T-shirt. He had been part of um, the aeronautical engineering team of at Hughes Aircraft when they built the first satellite that went around the earth. And so he had been an engineer and had been a part of this and been an, an, an inventor and always had these big entrepreneur aspirations. And his screen printing business had become a manufacturing business and he was manufacturing the screen printing equipment. And so I had looked at all of the, th all of what he had done 
And I realized that he hadn't even started that business till he was 50 years old. And so I was like, wow, you know, here I'm thinking, I don't know what's going to happen in my life because now I'm turning 50 and I had this business that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. And I was like, wait a second, I'm turning 50. My dad just started his business when he was 50. So what am I doing? I needed to get rid of that stinking thinking. And uh, so I dug back into Think and Grow Rich and, you know, started to reevaluate how to turn things around and what to do next. And it, uh, my mom had been, you know, a huge encourager and supporter during all of that years of, and during that whole time. And when I was in school and supporting me during school and everything. And so, you know, between the two of them, her steadfast and then his uh, inspiration of where he had gone, you know, I had a, a good basis to build upon when I decided to dust myself off, pick myself up and spin myself around and get on the road again. That's interesting that he, at the end of his life, inspired you to kind of open the next chapter in yours. Absolutely. That's pretty cool. Tell us about your business now. Where, what do you do today? It's, I know it's compassionate capitalist, but what, what does that mean? Yeah. So, so I had read this book way back when, um, by Rich DeVos and it was called Compassionate Capitalism and his, in his process and his thing as a, he's, he's one of the guys that started Amway, right? Right. And so, um, was, you know, you, you help other people learn how to have a business and, and through his business Amway, it was to, you know, people give people a, a hand up, not a handout. And if you help people become successful, then they can turn around and, help other people be successful. And when you they make money, then they spend money and that, you know, helps the economy and all that kind of stuff. And so it was a bottoms up, not a trickle down. And so I kind of took that and and I modified it to be what I believed angel investing was, right? Because my my job, my last job at IBM had been the um I was a complex opportunity business manager and my nickname was the deal maker. And I'd work with companies that had innovation that they needed to bring to the marketplace and um, they needed to get money. So IBM would had I would be on a team that would put together their plan and endorse them, so to speak, so they could go out and get venture capital money and then come back and spend it with IBM. And so that was a lot. And I was around a lot of this innovation. And so part of why I had left was to go help this one company do all of that. And I discovered angel investing. It was like brand new to me. I was like, it made sense, but I had no idea there were individuals that were writing checks out of their checking account. And so the reasons why they would invest in a startup company was because that they believed in the innovation that this, this inventor or this founder or this process or this idea for a business, or they believed in that entrepreneur. And because it's such a it's a it's a new thing and it's a high risk, a bank is not going to lend right, money right. to banks don't like live that. in money. They they you know startups get their money out of their credit cards or you know a lot of times, particularly if they're a, a high growth company, it's this group of angels that will give them the money. On average, it's between ten or twenty five thousand dollars. Somebody will stroke a check, and that was my definition of compassionate capitalism: somebody that invests time, money, knowledge, resources into an entrepreneur endeavor to bring innovation to the market, create jobs and create wealth for all those involved. And when the economy was tanking because of the recession, I said, you know, I'm going to take my podcast show. I had been doing these giant events with multiple companies pitching and hundreds of investors attending. It was called the Southeast Private Equity Conference. We called the Spec. And so my radio show was called the Spec Radio Show. And I would interview people on the show and industry people and all this kind of stuff. And I changed it to the Compassionate Capitalist Show. And I wanted to 
tick because a lot of angel investors I knew had took their money out of the banks and they had it sitting on the sidelines in, you know, and I wanted them to put it to work in entrepreneurs because the best way to turn our economy around was to get these entrepreneurs going with where the new jobs were going to be, where the innovation was going to be. And the big companies that struggle with innovation sometimes because they're a bureaucracy, they buy these companies. That's how they get the innovation. There's a f- whole food chain of how that happens. They don't, most companies don't go public. Most companies get bought at some point when they get to a certain size. And so, you know, that was really what I wanted to compel people to. And so I, that was what I was, I was, you know, when my dad passed, I was just in the start of that. And I said to myself, I keep talking about doing this compassionate capitalist movement and I keep thinking, oh, it's too big for me. Oh, it's, you know, what am I, who am I to think I could do this? I couldn't even do this other thing. So who am I to think I could do this? And then I said, I was shot through the nose and here I am. If I could be the person they should, maybe this is it. I have to start the compassionate capitalist movement. If not me, then who? And so that's where I, I, it became my life mission, my business endeavors, my podcast now is my megaphone for that, those ideas and those concepts. When the Jobs Act came about in 2012, it was what we knew, people in the industry knew was the biggest barrier between entrepreneurs raising capital was being able to get access to capital outside of these tightly knit angel groups. And so this was to remove the barrier to that and kind of upgrade the capital raising process to the 20th century because of the internet and how we communicate and things like that. So I knew, and the other side of the coin though, is that by them opening up this door for, to get access to other capital and crowdfunding was all the rage. They'd really, the Congress, because of people lobbying them had figured out that some of the things that we totally take for granted now, 3d printers, uh, um, drones, uh, the little Fitbit watches, all the smart watches that connect to our phones, that technology, a lot of the VR and AR uh, virtual reality and augmented reality headsets and goggles, even the little spinner thing that you, that the widgets, the little, you know, that people, you know, fidget widgets that people do, all of that stuff came to market because people did crowdfunding that was, was regs, was, reward base. They bought products in advance. And so when those companies became big multi-million dollar companies and got bought or got big venture capital money and went on and did other things, all those people that had put millions of dollars in didn't reap any benefits from that. And so part of the changes of the Jobs Act was said, not only can entrepreneurs do this way, but the other way is that all these people that lost a lot of their retirement because of the, the collapse of the stock market and the collapse of the real estate market, which now is only a decade later, just kind of getting back to zero to the, where it was. They had an opportunity to participate in these younger companies, the great economic democratization of the capital markets. They could participate at small levels in these companies and maybe take a $500 investment and it became a $1,000 investment. Or like a way a $20,000 of an angel might become $200,000, a $500 investment might become $5,000. And they could do lots of little bits of this the same way and participate in the American dream. Even if they couldn't run a business or start a business, they could participate in that way. And that was the purpose of my book was to teach people how to be able to do that with confidence when they're stroking checks out of their own um, checking account inside secrets to angel investing is a way for people to become compassionate capitalists and share in the American dream. And so that's my mission and that's, you know, where I'm going. That's what I do. And that's what you're doing. So what's your, what's your website? What's the name of your book and how can people get in touch with you if they want to? 
So my book is Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. The long title is Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, Step-by-Step Strategies to Leverage Private Equity Investment for Passive Wealth Creation. But if you just look for Inside Secrets to Angel Investing or my name, Karen Rands, R-E-N-D-S, with the S on the end, on Amazon, you can get the book or you can order it at whatever bookstores you go to, but it's not on the shelves. You have to order it. And on my website is really simple. It's just karenrands.co, karenrands, K-A-R-E-N-R-A-N-D-S.co. And on there is, uh, if you if you search, if you do Inside Secrets to AngelInvesting.com, it'll take you straight to a tab on that page. You can go and kind of check out chapters of it. Uh, there's 44 Inside Secrets in the book, and I have an excerpt of 12 of them that I have available on the on that page that you can go and check it out. And and so that's the best way to to reach me. The contact page you can if you're an entrepreneur or you're an investor or you want to get in. I do a what I call a compassionate capitalist coffee break. It's a an email series of snippets of videos and stuff that uh, are tips and techniques for building successful companies. And what I talk about on my show, the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Show, is you know things to make successful businesses. And I try to pull into it why an investor cares and why an entrepreneur cares. And we cover topics that I ta- interview a lot of angel investors and people that have written other books that are successful about you know building businesses or setting a business up to sell it. My next book that's going to be coming out is going to be how to scale a business to get it you know beyond startup to that next stage, so you can set it up for selling and raising capital for that. You're on a you're on a mission. I am. I'm going to have all the links to everything that we've talked about, your podcast, your book, your website, everything. They'll all be on the links uh, or they'll all be in the uh, episode notes for this show. And uh, so people can go there and, hey, I'm, you know, I'm glad that you survived being shot and that you're able to be here today for this conversation. Oh, thank you, Scott. It's like I haven't really gone public with this much. I remember the first time I was back up in Atlanta after I graduated from grad school and I'm at a party and we're sitting around and somebody had like an aha moment. They go, wait a second. I remember you were the girl that got shot through the nose. And they were like, what was that like? And, I, and you know, and, I, and since I, you know, I just kind of moved on with life and it was something I did with my, my life day. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, okay. And so you take it for granted because I have friends that I've now, you know, for 20s, you know, even here where I live now and um, 10 years and it'll come up sometimes. And people, and people that I've known for a while, they're like, wait a second, you got shot. You know, oh, and then one thing I have to add to it because it'll come up and I'll say, oh, I have a purple heart. And they're like, how'd you get a purple heart? So that summer when I was, my job was working at this bar that tended to the guys in the military base that was down the street. Jack's Liquors had a bar. And so I was, uh, had, I, my clientele were all mostly Navy guys. And they, um, when I got shot, you know, I'd missed work that day. And my, my boss was like, yeah, right. And then she saw the news. And so when I came back in and I was on the door checking IDs for a while and I had my bandage across my nose and, uh, some guy that had been there, like was a regular, um, older, got very much older and uh, he had two purple hearts and he gave me one of them and it was really extremely special. So I still have it. And I, I look at it and cherish it as, you know, as a, mem- uh, as a, you know, memento that, you know, of, of the experience. Yeah. That's a pretty cool gift. Karen, thanks for sharing your story with us. It's very interesting. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing where your, where your compassionate capitalist movement takes you. 
Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate uh, you, you know, giving me the opportunity to share this personal part, but something that is a, is a important because everybody has a purpose in their life, and hopefully they don't have to get shot to find it. Thanks for listening. My goal for each episode is to bring you people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you'd like to discuss this episode or previous episodes with other listeners, you can do that at our private Facebook group at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. I hope to see you in there. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And I'll see you in two weeks where we'll once again be asking the question, what was that like?